coming up on the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. Can you get more information into an automated system that can figure out what the hell is going on as quickly as possible? And can you replace all types of labor with proper AI you know, technology to, to figure out what's going on and improve the care? This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Doctors, Dr. Preneur's podcast. My name is Dr. Lim. I'm your host today. And together with me is my co-host, Andrew Mastrandonis. Andrew, the floor is yours. Hey, how are you doing, everybody? Welcome again to another exciting uh, podcast. Today we have Matthew Holt. And, and Matthew, uh, if I miss something or get something incorrect, let me know. But you are the founder of Health 2.0, a series of events and, con- and conferences and blogs way back in the ancient days of health tech. Is that about right? Uh, so, yeah, I was the co-founder of Health 2.0 with uh, Indu Sabaya. We founded it together. Health 2.0 still exists as an organization. Uh, the main bit that people know about it, which is the conferences, um, was sold and now lives somewhere buried in HIMSS, which is the big health IT sort of trade group slash membership association. Um and they've kind of done a, they've done some conversions of it, but the, the sort of glory days of the conferences were started in 2007 and went to about 2019. And um, we used to be at that point were kind of the biggest health tech in Silicon Valley conference or Silicon Valley in health conference, the way you want to think about it. We had a big conference every year in uh, San Francisco, eventually moved to Santa Clara, part of Silicon Valley. And we had, uh, I would think, we had conferences in every continent apart from Antarctica and uh, and Africa. So what's that? So we have one in India. We have one in uh, we have one uh, one in Europe. Um, we had we had uh, the occasional one in the Middle East. We had uh, one in Japan that's still going and it's changed its name and it's now reformulated to something else. Um, we had even one one in Latin America at one point, and we had a number in the US. So we were we were certainly a place where health tech companies would come, announce what they were doing, demo, demo their technologies, and a lot of conversation between anybody in healthcare, including patients, as well as you know, big companies and, and, and providers and doctors and whatever else, would get together around technology. And we'd all talk about how great it was going to be. So that's pretty much what I've been doing the last 30 odd years. Yeah. So what was, it like back, what was it like back in 2007? Like, What kind of technologies were you talking about back then? So I was particularly excited back then about the concept of getting information into what we now call social media, but was then called Web 2.0, which is hence why we call it Health 2.0. It was particularly interesting because it was the first time in sort of 2000, well, that's not quite true. In the 90s, there were a bunch of like email message groups and uh, there were some chat rooms and there were some... There wasn't like much corporate activity around it, but there was sort of a bunch of exchange of information in the early days of the internet. I'm talking, you know, 94, 5, 6, 7, 8, um, of, com- of people getting together and sharing experiences, right? Uh, and actually, back in 1996, when I worked at Institute for the Future, which, yes, there really is, was and is a company called that, which is a nonprofit researchy forecasting company based now in Palo Alto, California. Um, I actually had a, I brought, I met um, a patient who was running one of these cancer listservs. And I took her to a meeting that I was hosting of like a bunch of stuffy health insurers and pharma companies and, uh, you know, had her other. So, I showed, so there really was that idea of patients talking to each other online back in the 90s. But really, it didn't get easy and big until the mid 2000s, late 2000s. And there were companies like, uh, oh, you know. Um, Sermo on the doctor side and patients like me on the patient side where there was a lot of communication. And I thought we were going to create kind of a new way of figuring out how to, how to do healthcare research. And we would improve the practice of medicine because instead of people having to have it filtered through standard channels, you know, and, uh, uh, and the New England Journal of Medicine and whatever, you know, people would be exchanging information online and we would figure out from real world activity what worked and what didn't work. Um, that was a little bit optimistic, but that was, I thought, the most exciting thing early on. And then the other thing that was going on, you know, 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 onwards, and obviously much, much more now, is that we moved to a couple of different technologies. One was cloud, um, and one was, and one was uh, mobile phones. 
or, or I'll rephrase that. We had mobile phones before, but you know, smartphones with um, operating systems that allow you to do incredible computing with sensors in them, right? Um, and the combination of that, uh, I felt, would enable us to do a lot more than we currently have done. Although we started doing it in terms of communicating between doctors and patients wherever they are and whenever they were needed, and also getting information off patients, which could be centralized, tracked, you know, and, and, and spat back at them. And, you know, a lot of the companies that you see working now in, 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 in the, the health tech field are doing some variant of that. So it's not like it never happened. But uh, that was the sort of second big interesting move. So one was around her knowledge exchange and one was around sort of communication and tracking. Um, and, and that's been, you know, I think a lot of the interesting stuff that's gone on in health technology in the last few years has been around those kinds of concepts. Right. So how did you transition into doing these, these conferences? How did that all come about? Oh God, I couldn't get a job, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so, uh, I mean, I I was, you know, I came out of grad school, couldn't get a job, ended up at this crazy research institute. Um, And even there I was, I was supposed to be a uh, health policy guy talking about, you know, how the American healthcare system was going to change and what have you. And I still am one of those guys. But uh, they had a, they they also had a technology practice which was unconnected to healthcare at all, and then somebody I, I think somebody in the technology practice had sold a healthcare project to the technology company, saying, "Oh, we should pay attention to healthcare to the big industry," but didn't want to do it. And when I came in as the new guy, they said, "Oh, you, you know, congratulations, you're running this now. Better go learn something about technology." So uh, I did that for several years. Uh, I went in and out of a couple of different companies. I went into a a startup that was doing, you know, the, the first wave of doing um, digital health. It wasn't called digital health. It was called e-health then in the first wave in 99, 2000, 2001. That went out of business and I spent 2002 on the beach. And when I came back, I got myself some work doing consulting, primarily for big tech companies, helping them figure out the status, the status quo of, of, uh, of healthcare and what they should be doing. You know, people like Cisco and Microsoft and did a whole bunch of work for Philips. Um, back in the day when Philips was trying to get out of his deal with Epic and they were trying to, and the guy who ran, who, who hired us wanted to buy Cerner, which would have been a very, very good move, but he couldn't get anyone on Philips to, to pony up the money. So that never happened <laughs> 20 years later, Oracle buys it, right? Um, for a much higher price. <laughs> uh, anyway, at that time, so I'd been on the beach for 2002, I, you know, I was in San Francisco and I hope this history is not about to repeat itself, but I went. I was in San Francisco and from negative unemployment in 99, 2000. Literally, people would stop you on the street and ask you if you wanted to come work with them. You know, it was like, I definitely remember being at a soccer game, playing soccer, and the guy on the other team said, you know, you got a job because I'm hiring, you know. <laughs> like, my qualification was having a pulse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't take the job. I had a different job. But anyway, um, uh, and then 2002, you know, the dot-com bust was really, the bust was on, and no one had a job, and... I went, well, if I'm going to be unemployed, I can be unemployed in the beach in Vietnam or India, cheaper than I can be on, on the, you know, sitting in my apartment in San Francisco. So I actually did that. I took off, put all my stuff in storage. And I had a travel blog, right? I had one of those first digital cameras, and I would, like, write up where I am. You know, I'm in India or I'm in Thailand or wherever I was. Um, I actually went to Malaysia. That was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, when I came back to the U.S., we're now 2003, middle of 2003, um, there are now these blogs are just getting going. So Blogger, the software, is just getting bought by Google around that time. And there was WordPress was just getting going. Some other other of these uh, technologies were just getting going for, for blogging, right? So you could publish more easily on the web. This is part of what you know Health 2.0 was, was about. So patients could publish. So uh, I saw there were a bunch of very popular politics blogs, and I started one. No one cared about mine. And then uh, I thought I should look up how many people have got a healthcare blog. And I actually Googled, like, you know, went to the domain name for healthcare blog. Somebody owns healthcare blog and has never, ever used it. <laughs> so I thought, well, I can't do a healthcare blog. Maybe I can do the healthcare blog. So I started, so I registered the healthcare blog. I set up a blog on Blogger and started, you know, writing little pieces about stuff. And, you know, the first few months, I think my dad just retired. He read it a bit. <laughs> but steadily, little by little, right, people started reading it. And one of the things I started doing was while I was doing consulting work for these uh, tech companies is I started looking at around, a, 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 there was just a very slow emergence of 
tech companies um, who were, you know, like patients like me or Sermo or uh, uh, within three. And there were, uh, Steve Case had put some money into a company called Revolution Health. But it was just, you know, with no, nothing like the money going in now, but, but just the very start of this stuff was going on. And I was writing about it. And I remember being on a, uh, having one of the first podcasts. Well, we just, it wasn't like a podcast show. I just did podcasts. Uh, you know, I did audio interviews and put them up on the blog, right? Um, and I had one with Healthline and with a company uh, called Organized Wisdom, which is the guys who are now running Startup Health. And I like who the third person was, somebody anyway. And at the end of the interview, right, after we're done, they're, they're all talking and they're saying, Matthew, nobody else is talking to us. It's only you. <laughs> you, know, you should do a conference. And I went, what do I know about a conference? Anyway, literally December 2006, I walk into a, uh, a little meetup. It was, it was called Bar Camp before there was meetup. And I met Indu Sabaya, who's my partner. And she had, was a, a pharmaceutical consultant, an MD, but had done some work with pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies. And she had been building a, uh, she had done a little bit, of, she was building a little software company on the side, which actually didn't go, end up going anywhere because Health Tupelo replaced her efforts for that. She reminds you for years. I could have been a great entrepreneur in software, but you maybe do this conference thing instead. Um, and then she also was doing some consulting work for the California Healthcare Foundation around like new startups in healthcare. And I said, well, we're both doing that. We should get together. And, and I said, well, she wants me to do a conference. She said, well, we should do one. I said, what do you know about it? And she said, not much. So I said, what do I know about it? Not much. And so we were the perfect combination to go off and, you know, <laughs> not knowing what we didn't know. And so we set up the first conference for 2007. And it was like, incredibly successful we just hit the thing where it was just taking off you don't need to have much much better to be lucky at the right time to be good <laughs> and for about three or four years there was like huge demand every time we put one on we we sold it out you know it got tougher later on but at that point it was just very successful there are any number of companies getting funded interested in this who wanted to show they didn't have anywhere else to go and so yeah. that worked very well for us for, for some reason that's how Health 2.0 kicked off and we added, you know, we added a consulting division. We added uh, a division doing challenges and running uh, running pilot programs. We did all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, we, we ended up being a relatively sizable organization by 2015, 16. Um, and and uh, at that point, we looked at each other and said, we've been doing this for 10 years. Do you think someone wants to buy it? <laughs> and uh, that's when we sold it to him. So so that, that, that was that was sort of the, the story of it. And it kept going until 2019. I think... Uh, like many things, it didn't it didn't make it through the pandemic, <laughs> but by then it wasn't mine. So, right, I, I give you a lot of credit for starting a, a company doing conferences. I ran conferences for a couple of years in another space, and it's a lot of work to organize events like that. Isn't it, it is, yes, I would agree. With you. It's a lot of work, but it's like uh, you know, it was replacing consulting, and it, and it was, and it, and it does put you in an interesting spot because you get to see a lot of stuff. Right, you get to see a lot of people who. Are, who are coming through and you know you have to deal with both the big companies who come here and say what is this weird newfangled thing you know you're calling it around health technology and the cloud and you know, all that stuff you're talking about and then you have all the, the the small companies who are sniffing around looking for deals and looking for venture capital and then you know as it gets later it got more systemized you have more and more venture capitalists investing in that area and that's only boomed since then and you had companies who are just about to start getting to go public you know and you had a few in 2013, 14, and then a whole raft of them in the last couple of years. And now we're having the, they've marched up to the top of the hill and they're marching back down again pretty rapidly in terms of the valuations and how well they're doing. But, uh, you know, it's it's certainly, if you just look at, go back to, you know, 2007, 2008, even nine, even though there was a bit of a, a slowdown during the, the financial crisis, it wasn't so bad. Um, and there were, there were companies raising 20, 30, 40 million, you know, even back then, but not very many. And then you fast forward to like 2018, especially in 2020, 2021, companies raising you know hundreds of millions of dollars and in some cases a billion dollars, you know, to 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 attempt to take over an entire area of the you know to technology. Um, it, it's it's really significantly bumped up. Right. Wow. So you so you've seen a lot of you've seen the development of health tech since the early 2000s, maybe even before. Yeah, actually, before that, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about sort of the use of technology in healthcare since then? 
would you say we've made a lot of progress? Not as much as you would have hoped? How do, how do you see it? I mean, I mean not as much as we would have hoped, right? I, I wrote a thing. The last thing I did at Institute for the Future was to write a, what ended up being a 13-year forecast of the American healthcare system. So this is 97, 98. I'm working. Uh, we, we got a grant to give money by the Robert Johnson Foundation, who were at that point celebrating their 25th anniversary, I think. Um, might have been their 50th. They've been around a while, but they were. Uh, and they were saying, what's going to change in American healthcare? And, and I said, well, right back then, other countries were just getting going on sort of putting in electromedical records. So I wasn't thinking so much about the consumer end or sensors or whatever or the cloud. I was thinking about what would happen if we actually had you know, properly recorded what the hell was going on in medicine in electromedical records and started using that data to improve what we did. Right. And the UK had put in EMRs and had the GPs that New Zealand had, Norway had, Netherlands had. Basically, in a country beginning with N, it had EMRs now, right? In the late, the late 90s. And so I, I, I thought, well, we've got a situation here where these countries have done it. The US, you know, it's a disaggregated, difficult system, but the US could start to do this, right? And the U.S. spends a whole lot of money. We know it spends money in a lot of wasted places in healthcare. If you started figuring out what you were doing, you could manage the care of those of the, of the patients much better if you were tracking what was actually happening. So that was my naive view of what electronic medical records were supposed to do. Um, <laughs> turns out electronic medical records were a waste of, you know, if you could put them in, you could find out you could bill the government or bill insurance companies more than you than you had before because you could more accurately count all the stuff you're doing. That's how they ended up being used. And the sort of improving healthcare and improving population health is a secondary effect that hasn't really happened. But you know, that's what I thought was going to happen. And I thought that would happen pretty you know, I, I said, you know, you've seen computers come into other industries in the 90s and 80s and 90s. It hasn't really come to healthcare. I think by 2010, we'll have, you know, most will have an electronic medical record. What actually happened is that not much happened until the Obama administration showed up. Then they had money. They, they had what, you know, seems like a lot of money now, $40 billion. Although since we've had the, the you know, the, the COVID pandemic and <laughs> have now been throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at God knows what, um, you know, doesn't seem that much. But we put in, we paid, essentially put in the state of the art or the state of the market electronic medical record across the US, kind of to catch us up with where the Dutch and the, Norwegians and the Swedes and the Brits, you know, and the Australians have been. Um, the, the, you know, uh, so that took us a long while to get there. And we haven't, we spent the next last 10 years trying to figure out how does, what do we actually do with these things and how can we get data out of them? And that has been a long, laborious process. Although I think we're starting to get somewhere. But we haven't really impacted the way we look after people in the US and we haven't really fixed the fundamental. And we had a lot of, stuff going to healthcare over here in the US, but we haven't really fixed the fundamental problems of, of trying to manage the care of people who need it, you know, on a consistent basis. We haven't really done that. And that's been more of a policy and a business issue than it has been a technology issue, I think. You know, te- you put technology in, you get better view into the system you already have. If you change the system, that's my, and you want to, you want to change the system using regulation and policy and it's tough. So, so you don't think the the uh, you know the interoperability of health technology and some of the issues associated with that have been part of the problem? You think it's more a policy and business issue? Yeah, I mean, basically, if you look at American healthcare, all the policy ones, I include myself in this, right? People who said, "Oh, well, here's how you should do it," they all looked at Kaiser Permanente and Geisinger, which are the two systems which you know include both the insurance company and the medical group and the hospitals together, right? And basically, instead of optimizing for how much an insurance company makes or optimizing how much the medical group makes, how much the hospital makes, Kaiser theoretically, this may not be actually true, but theoretically optimizes for how much Kaiser abroad can make with the money it gets from its customer, the employer or the government, you know, per head. So they're incented to manage the overall health of the population for as little, you know, and, and not spend as much money, right, as, as possible. Whereas everybody else in the American system is optimized to figure out how can I make as much money as possible for my hospital, or how can I do as many transactions services? And the insurers are trying to figure out either how can I stop the hospitals and doctors doing that, which leads to a lot of back and forth, or they give up and say, well, they just turn around to the employers who are their customers and the government and say, oh, uh, you owe us more money next year. And that's traditionally how the American system has worked. 
my assumption is till you get everybody into something that looks more like a Kaiser permanent system, the trendy thing we now call it is value-based care. Right. Um, you're not going to get the incentives to change and people are going to use the technology they have to optimize, uh, optimize, you know, what they, what they want to do. And you still have the situation. I mean, literally this was, I was, I was on a um, slide group the other day where a, 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 a senior healthcare executive got cancer, you know, and then was describing her experience in Florida where she, you know, had the tests, went to the new doctor, the new doctor insisted on getting, you know, getting, running all the tests again, wouldn't, take the test from the old doctor. I mean, all the same stuff we've had forever, right? Even though that was available electronically, she wouldn't, you know, the doctor, new doctor wouldn't accept it. And this kind of thing, you know, unnecessary people feathering their, people feathering their own nests as opposed to what's the best for the overall system or the patient has gone on forever. Um, and, you you know, there are, we have more investigative journalists now showing this stuff like ProPublica and Kaiser Health News and others, but we don't know less of it going on. <laughs> so, so I'd say that's the underlying problem, right? In, there's no real incentives for me to share data with the people down the street if they're making better this, you know. So it's better, and now we have the the, the government and CNCMS telling us, yeah, yeah, you have to interoperate, you have to make your data available with our APIs and all the rest of it, but. They haven't like really hung out anybody to dry who's not doing it. Like, let me give you one example. So the Trump administration, and uh, I can probably be, I'm not the world's greatest fan of the Trump administration. I do. <laughs> but one thing they did was quite interesting is they believed, you know, that, that hospitals should be transparent about their pricing. So they've introduced this, uh, this law that says hospitals should put up their pricing, you know, and put it on the web and make it available. And if you go look at it, it's all over the map. Half of them have them do it. Half of them do it, but hide it from Google. Half of them do it in a way that is impossible for any human to understand, you know, even machine to understand. And some of them have, you know, put up, have done, have done the right thing. Theoretically, the people who are, who are doing it badly are supposed to get fined 300 bucks a day or something, but it's probably cheaper for them. A, I don't think them actually are being fined. It doesn't seem to be being enforced. And B, mm -hmm. it's probably cheaper to pay 300 bucks a day if you're a big hospital and actually go through the reorganization effort of actually putting your data up properly and then risking the fact that the hospital competitor down the street says, aha, they're getting a better deal out of insurance company ABC. You know, we should undercut them, <laughs> which is, which is what you know, the data that they're supposed to be putting up there is now. So, so I think uh, you can argue back and forth, but the, it's how the system is set up is the problem. Yeah. Interoperability doesn't work. The EMRs are hard to use. Uh, it's hard to get patients to use technology in their own home and yes there's lots of problems with you know you know there are lots of aggressive youngish patients who want to have more control over their data and want to have a better experience using technology from from the healthcare system and there's a lot of complaints about that but in general most patients you know they're not like storming the barricades there aren't enough of them storming the barricades to want to change how it's how it's done so um you know, and just people go, well, that's healthcare. We know it's a shitty experience. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot yeah. of that going on. Yeah. So interesting. So I, I, I would blame that rather than, you know, the technology itself. Yeah. So what, um, go ahead, Dr. Lim. Yeah, uh, Andrew, I, I'm just going to segue into a different topic. So if you have any more questions on this one, I think you should go ahead first. No, I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, looking at the brighter side of things, uh, you know, uh, we are seeing, uh, technology a lot of technology development happening in the healthcare sector. Based on your experience, what are some of the uh, more exciting potential startups or health digital healthcare companies that are uh, coming to the market or in the market right now that you think could positively impact the industry? So I think if you're going to go down the path of, of what will positively impact the industry, I mean, there are, there are probably uh, three or four main areas. So um, and I don't know how far this has gone internationally, but I think within the U.S., uh, so I would pick the areas as being mental health and access to mental health online and automated mental health online. There's been some hiccups lately, but I think that's one area a lot of money's gone into it. And, and, and we know that mental health issues were increased dramatically during the pandemic. You know, most of us are sitting at home, half of us were getting depressed, half of us were shouting at our kids, half of our kids were shouting back at us, you know, and... And there are now solutions online where you can find a solution where it's previously been very hard to access that. So I'd say mental health and the ability to use tools and technology. I mean, there's a lot of innovation in mental health. There are people building these digital therapeutics. 
you know, like, like video games that improve your mind. And that's an entire, we can still, uh, my, my buddy, Eugene Marahovic, uh, runs a thing called the Digital Therapeutics Podcast, which, you know, he interviews, I think he's done 35 or 40 interviews and got another season coming out of people, and most of it's around mental health. There, there are others, but a lot of it's around, you know, sleep and depression and anxiety and stuff. So I think there's a lot you can do there. And even on that case, we're starting to look at like, uh, use of psychedelic drugs and, and that kind of stuff, which, you know, ketamine and stuff. So, so there's a lot going on there, which is very, very exciting. A lot of that is, is new. Most of it's really the consumer focus because it's not, there are obviously people who are very expensive who have mental health conditions, but it's not a particularly expensive issue compared to like cancer or trauma or what have you. So a lot of people prepare to pay for this out of pocket. So you're seeing a bit of activity around that as well. So I'd say that's, that's one. The second one, and, and there are lots of exciting companies in there. I mean, the big ones like Lira and Headspace Health. There's a, a small one I'm a big fan of run by a, um, someone I like a lot called Christina Safran, which is called Equip, which is aimed specifically at eating disorders um, and has a, an entire online platform for eating disorders, which is replacing either nothing because people with eating disorders obviously don't get, don't get a lot of treatment or very expensive residential programs, which only work when the person's in the program. And when they go back home or go back to their old community or, you know, it's, it's like, drug addiction, they, uh, they fall off the wagon. In this case, they stop eating. <laughs> so that area I like. So I like Equip a lot in that. And there's another company, uh, I'm a teeny, teeny angel in called Supportive, which uh, has a really cool online peer support network for mental health. You know, you can go into your phone, you can be get into a chat room of eight people moderated by a psychology student and help you figure through a bunch of basic stuff around depression or relationships or whatever. So that area I think is fantastic. And I think there's a lot of growth there. There's a lot of, you know, there's a company called Cerebral, which is in some trouble at the moment, you know, which has been accused of over-prescribing ADHD drugs or whatever. But I think in general, that's a great area. And it's been very effective, works very well with telehealth, right? Um, because you don't need to be touching someone to know what they're talking about or listening. And we're going to get, there's a lot more coming on the path in that area with things like vocal biomarkers. There are companies like Ellipsis and, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the one out of Berkeley, which can now start predicting your mood or your disorder or your issues from the sound of your voice, right? So, so that's one big one. The second one, um, if we're going to fix Andrew's problem with interoperability, it's probably going to be done by somebody who can go and grab data. And there are a couple of companies I like a lot in that area, but there's a whole bunch of people doing it. But uh, there's a couple of early stage companies, one called Seekster, S-E-Q-S-T-E-R, another one called Pluto Health. I'm very familiar with both the CEOs there. And they're both kind of trying to help figure out ways that you can grab your data. So I've gone through the Pluto Health process as a beta user, and I was able to get almost all of my medical records by just telling Pluto Health where I lived and my name. Once they validated it was me, I didn't have to know anything about where I'd been. They went off and found someone on the network. They found every medical interaction, I think every medical interaction I've had since 2000 which I thought was remarkable. They went back oh, on, wow. you know, so that, you know, I think that will kind of mean that, although it may not be interesting for the different people who treated me to, to swap information, I personally might be able to become a hub and a company like a Pluto Health or a Seekstore or many others, there's Pitney Health and others doing this, may, may, uh, may, may, may help that. And interesting enough, both of those two are kind of using this for the, the people who really care about your data from past, from past experiences are drug companies when they put you in a clinical trial because they they have to capture that they they, they need to find out and bring about you so uh, they're they're getting they're both of those companies are getting funded by among other people pharma companies to help them you know access the data for patients in clinical trials the past data for accessing patients in clinical trials more quickly um, and then the third area which I'm very interested in is uh, sort of remote monitoring and remote management of patients and even remote care, direct hospital care of patients. So there's a ton of companies. There's actually uh, one from down the road in you in Singapore, which has now moved to Boston called Bioformis, which is doing a lot in this area. Um, there's, I mean, a gazillion companies doing remote patient monitoring. There's a very interesting company. I had a health group when I three years ago when they were just getting going and now they have big deals with Mayo and Kaiser and others uh, called Medically Home, which literally is admitting, you know, is admitting people to their own home for an inpatient admission. And they put all the technology, they have all the suppliers there, they connect with you. They have a 30-day admission, which is much cheaper than the typical three or four-day 
hospital admission because they don't have to pay for it. Um, and they probably know more about you than the hospital than, than when you're in the hospital. And they will get nurses and physical therapists and whomever to your place. And they, at the moment, it looks like it's cheaper and has better outcomes. I mean, this obviously has to be washed through as it goes, goes to scale. But that kind of thing, I think, is very interesting. And, and I actually have a whole spiel and talk about a thing called a continuous clinic, which is the organization that don't really exist yet, but the organizations that will manage people based on how sick they are. Because if you require, you know, you have a rash and you require a quick telehealth visit to get some cream prescribed, that's different than, you know, you have pneumonia and we're going to try and manage you with a combination of drugs and, you know, medical interventions in your home and oxygen and what have you that you might otherwise be admitted to hospital for. So, and obviously this came up as a big deal during COVID when you didn't want to get people who had COVID and were sick into the hospital when they could, you know, but then you couldn't manage them at home because they didn't have blood, you know, pulse oxys and they didn't have temperatures and you, know, you couldn't track them, right? I think there will be a growth of organizations that kind of manage that um, and, and start being sort of, you know, uh, location independent. Um, and and I, I call them the continuous clinic because I used to call them the Plikimo. Patient Location Independent Care Management Organization. And my friend Jessica Damasa told me that's a completely stupid name. Come up with something better. <laughs> Actually, she came up with Continuous Clinic. <laughs> Most of my good ideas are either Jessica's or Indie Supplies. <laughs> how, 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 how do you scale that type of sort of in-home hospital? I mean, you need labor, you need equipment, and how do you keep it cost effective? I mean, this is the big question, right? Because originally you think, well, this thing is going to be more cost effective to put everyone in one place and have all the staff and stuff around them. Um, on the other hand, you don't have the capital cost, right? And, you, and the dead little secret is you're going to put a little bit of labor onto the caregiver, right? There should be, there's probably a family member and lay caregiver there as well. Um, and you might be moving some of the, what I think we're doing, this is going to be a big deal in, in healthcare across the world um, is that we're, we're, we're trying to split up. We're trying to move costs, labor costs, particularly. I mean, you've got some facility costs, which you don't have to deal with in hospital. But labor costs, you're going to try and break into three units, right? One is low-skilled, cheap people who are home aides or even family members who are very cheap because you probably don't pay them, you know, who get to do a bit more than they did before. Um, but probably okay. The second is, can you get better physician care delivered um, remotely, you know, can you get a primary care? I don't say primary, but certainly, I mean, primary, yeah, but, okay. but can you get physician, expensive physician care delivered in slices using technology, using telehealth, using whatever, where the physician is very well informed by data coming back from all the sensors and the stuff in the, in the home um, and actually makes better decisions, can titrate drugs more quickly and better rather than, rather than like the chaos surrounding the hospital once a day or what have you. So can you actually do it, do it better and, you know, make these people better? faster by having better information supply and dedicated physicians running this. Um, and then the third part, which we don't talk about much, but it's got to be the big deal out of technologies. Can you get more information into an automated system that can figure out what the hell is going on as quickly as possible? And can you replace all types of labor with, you know, AI rules, either rules-based or proper AI, you know, technology to, to figure out what's going on and improve, improve the care. It's, you know, I'm with you, Andrew. It's, it's like delivering groceries. It sounds like it should be more expensive to deliver groceries to somebody's home and have trucks and whatever. Um, and, you know, from a big warehouse like an Amazon, than making people go to a supermarket, you know, where they go to a supermarket and they do the labor themselves of selection and transportation. But, you know, um, it, it, it may be. I, I, I haven't seen the... The study that it sounds like it should be better to get people to come to a doctor's office and sit around. Well, they're doing, you know, you're putting the travel on them. I mean, less, maybe less humane, less, 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 less good for the patient. But uh, I'm not sure that plays out. And we're, we're seeing, you know, more and more distribution of, say, workplaces, right? I mean, places that's going on right now where more and more people are, I'm sure all three of us are, are in a remote place. And I haven't been to an office for many, many years now. You know, uh, my wife's company that she works for now was was able to recruit her. They're in Boston. And normally, they would have had to recruit her in Boston out from the San Francisco area, but instead they just recruited the entire 
they got a whole bunch of people they probably couldn't have got before who are probably more effective and better and what have you by hiring people all over the place. So I'm with you. I think we'll, we'll, you know, there'll be studies figuring out whether this was a good idea or whether it was a, you know, uh, another expense. But I would say that outside of people in very acute level hospital care, we don't know much about what the hell is going on with patients, right? Until we start putting devices on the patient in their home where they are. And, you know, you should theoretically be able to do better by knowing what the hell is going on with the patient um, earlier, right? So a classic example of this is a company called Podometrics, which uh, uh, they put a, they have a like a pad. They've done this with the VA in the US. They have like a pad. It looks like a weight scale. But what it does is it measures the heat of your foot. So they have managed to get, you know, pretty old, sick people with diabetes to stand on this thing on average six times a week. And they're taking measurements of the heat of their foot and they are getting early indicators of whether there's going to be an ulcer. So this is back to the old things. If you can get people, you know, to do this and you can start tracking them and pay attention to the data and you can reach out and get a nurse to go to the house or whatever and explain to them how they can, you know, change what they're doing and do this and the other and get Medicaid, whatever it is, that's a hell of a lot cheaper than ignoring them for three months, six months and having them have to cut their foot off amputation because they, you know, because they have a diabetic ulcer. And we know we've done a lot of, you know, diabetic ulcer foot amputations. So I think you can argue that whether or not this ends up being cheaper, it's better care, but it probably should be cheaper. But there are some studies which suggest that, you know, hasn't necessarily been there, been cheaper so far. So, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about whether this thing is going to be more cost effective. So who knows? So, so outside of the, the labor cost and technology cost and doing things in an in-home setting, do you think the pandemic has set expectations for consumers to want services at home? I, I think there are two areas in the U.S. where I'm starting to see leading edge. One is, you know, um, simple telehealth and back and forth communication with my doctor, right? So I had COVID relatively recently. I finally got the breakthrough, you know, thought I was bulletproof, had all the, all the vaccinations, the rest of it. Had had the test went to had the test went to an open party somebody at the party had it boom I got it right, um, and I am a patient of One Medical which is in one of the relatively new startup systems, um, primary care systems, and my doctor there you know I just sent him an, I basically sent him an email it's within their system and said all right I've got COVID, I want Paxlovid can you figure out what you know and between us we figured out where it was which is the medication and and uh, you know we went back and forth over email and he did subscription. So there was no indication of me go, ever go. I, I was never going to go to his physical location. He was just managing me basically via email. You know, could have done been done before, but that and that's you know that that is a uh, that kind of expectation. I think is going to be much more available for people. Um, and then the 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 other expectation I think is is that. Oh, I completely lost my train of thought. I had two brilliant things to say, and that was one of them. <laughs> one of them was by, by email, and then I'll, the other one will come to me when we talk about the next topic. <laughs> well, well, related to that, um, yeah, people are using telehealth and email like you suggested, but then why are companies like Teladoc, a public company whose stock has just gone off the cliff post-pandemic? I, I bought some a while ago because it had gone down so much, I thought it couldn't go down anymore. So my, my, my understanding of telehealth and my understanding of stock trading may not be quite on par. <laughs> I mean, people are saying telehealth is here to stay and, you know, I'm sure it is in some regard, but I wonder if companies like Teladoc have really figured out the business model for it. I, I, look, I think that, you know, if you look across the board of all the startup physical bricks and mortar companies, the, uh, the, the, you know, like One Medical or Oak Street or whatever, you look across the board at all the, you know, telehealth companies, the two big two ones, Teladoc and Amwell, they're all still bleeding money, right? They're all yeah. bleeding. They haven't figured that. Some of them may be expansion, but, you know, and they're, they're, they're building new stores. They're getting decent same store growth, but they have to get the new stores online. And, you know, maybe it, they have enough money to expand and maybe, you know, this is the Uber play. You get to be everywhere. But even Uber, right, isn't profitable yet across the board. So you're wondering, how do you benefit from the scale? How do you do it? So maybe that this is all, you know, none of this is going to work. And I'm the jury is out, particularly now the stock market's down. Sources of private capital are going to start drying up. 
you know, we're probably going to head towards a recession in the world in a couple of years or maybe 18 months or whenever you start to see people, the, the speaker has been turned off, the, the speaker that was turned, it was already running through the, the teens and was really turned on, you know, under COVID to make sure that the economy, the world economy didn't completely collapse. Um, you know, you could argue that there's not going to be enough money around and these people aren't going to make it. And we're back in 20, we're back in 2002, you know, with, I should go back to Thailand or whatever. <laughs> it's not be a bad idea. Um, but, but, you know, it's hard to argue that you're not going to see the use of some of these new, um, some of these new ways of delivering care just because the companies who were trying to do them independently, you know, don't make it because what's happened in the U S at least is that the people, you know, Medicare, the government and insurance companies have started paying for these types of things. They started paying for telehealth. They started paying for, you know, uh, remote patient monitoring. And, and, and so you, you'll, you know, the industry will kind of coalesce around the C schedule that's been paid for. And, you know, so I think those will start to be used as ways. I don't think people will stop using them, but you're right because to say this because that stuff, even after you know, 15 years of me bullshitting about it, you know, at conferences and online, and uh, a lot of people investing venture money and all that stuff, that stuff is still a very small minority of how carers are doing in the US. And yes, everyone went on the telehealth basically using, you know, it wasn't even telehealth, it was telephone care in March 2020, because they had to, because every doctor's office was closed and you couldn't get to one because everyone was terrified of COVID. But steadily, people have gone back to the old way of doing things and the rates of use of telehealth. It's way, way higher than it was in February 2020, but it's nowhere near where it was in you know May 2020. Right. So right. you could you could argue that it that 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 it'd be a slow change. And 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 I, I would always take it back to the fact of how do people get paid? Well, not only do you get paid for seeing a patient in front of you, um, it comes in, you know, probably a bit more than you get paid over telehealth. But when they're in front of you and your in your uh, fiscal interest is in figuring out more stuff to do with them, you can do a lot more to figure out what else you can do to them, <laughs> including admitting them to the hospital, than if they're on if they're uh, just on a telehealth visit. So you know, it's still in the interest of most American healthcare people in the system to do more to their patients, right? You can still argue that a third of surgeries are necessary. You can still argue that, you know, a significant amount of hospital admissions are unnecessary. Um, and we know that the biggest hospital systems, the big, uh, you take out Kaiser and Geisinger, you think about the big Catholic systems like um, Ascension. I mean, Ascension was was quoted in earlier this year as saying that they're still at 90 plus percent fever service getting paid for transactions that's that's in their interest so you know um it's going to be tough for them to think about what would be the most efficient way to deliver care to a population when their goal is to fill those beds and get more get more get more uh surgery going and in fact if you look at the big healthcare the big hospital systems in the u.s you know where most of the healthcare money is spent um the problems they had during march through to you know whenever it was the the first big wave march through to kind of the end of the summer yeah they had to deal with a lot of you know converting all of their wards to icu wards and the rest of it but their main financial problems were they had to stop operating you know they, they had to stop doing orthopedic surgery and neuro neurosurgery and cardiology all that stuff had to stop right so because they didn't have the capacity to do it and because people couldn't come in the people were scared of covid and as soon as that started getting back to normal their financial situation recovered. So you have a system in the US and to some extent other countries, certainly in the US, which is predicated on big hospital systems, institutions doing a lot of stuff to people, kind of whether they need it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, you know, uh, the, the, the difficulty is, is that you have to wave a magic wand primarily at Congress to say, oh, we're going to pay the healthcare system in a whole different way. And of course, Congress gets massively influenced by the actors in the healthcare system who don't really want things to change because uh, you know, things are things in general are okay. And by the way, be completely cynical about it. When uh, COVID happened, right, and we and the government put on the spigot and started paying people to stay home and started paying businesses to 
you know, not not hire, not fire their employees and the rest of it. There was a, in the CARES Act, there was a whole bunch of money for, for hospitals. And many of these big hospital systems have run up massive cash reserves in the last decade or so. I mean, Ascensions, I think, is over $25 billion. Mayo is at like $12 billion. I mean, huge amounts of money. And when they found that, you know, the presumably safe for a rainy day in the future, and when the rainy day in the future came and there was no uh, elective surgery to pay the bills, what do they do? Do they dip into their reserves? No, they put their hand out to the government, to money from the government. So, so I'm like incredibly cynical about the interest of these folks in changing how they've been acting. But eventually, I think, you know, the combination of a new wave of doctors, a new wave of patients, a new wave of technology will, you know, things will change. It's just an unbearably slow process. It's, it's not, I always say to my, to the startups I work with, you know, you remember Instagram, they founded the thing and then they sold for a billion dollars, you know, with millions of users, like 11 months later, that's not going to happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Andrew and I kind of have a personal interest in the caregiving space because that's kind of what we're doing here in Malaysia. Uh, we run okay. uh, a chain of nursing homes and also um, personal caregiving, private caregiving services. One of some of the more exciting startups or uh, technology that you see in the US that are being currently deployed in this uh, whole caregiving space, if you know uh, of any. I mean, there are, there are some interesting ones. So there are people trying to build both programs and staffing agencies. Um, so, you know, one called Honor, which is, yeah. uh, raised quite a lot of money and is doing that. Um, there are, you know, I, 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 this is an area in the U S which has got a lot of problems because it doesn't get paid for out of the same bucket of Medicare money. So something gets paid for out of Medicaid, which is the program for poor people, but those, uh, and then something gets paid out of private pay, which obviously means only a few rich people can afford it. So. So there's a lot of problems. There is, there is a, you know, and there's a lot of, as you probably know, a lot of, I hope this doesn't happen in Malaysia and where you're working, but there's a lot of sort of demarcation speeches about, okay, you can leave hospital for 30 days, extra care will be covered and then it won't be covered. In the rest of yeah, it. so, it's the same here but, in Malaysia. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> there's a lot of problems about, you know, how people get paid and what happens. And there's a, been a lot of, issues in the US with big private equity companies coming in, buying up nursing homes. And, and nursing homes weren't exactly pretty before this happened, you know, but there was just a recent investigation where, you know, uh, in ProPublica, a whole bunch of, uh, of, of nursing homes run by uh, KKR, one of the big private equity, or owned by one of the big private equity companies, KKR, you know, had just deplorable conditions and, you know, things things were, were really bad. So, so I think there's a lot of, issues there. There are some, but like I said, there are some interesting attempts to do sort of staffing and to do, um, you know, care. And there's, I mean, um, I don't know, one of my, uh, uh, i trying to think that, that there's, there's uh, some people, it may be too early, but there are some people building um, tools, which, oh, and one of my favorite ones has now changed its name. I've now forgotten this name, but it was doing remote surveillance of people either in nursing homes or in uh, or in their own homes using avatar-based dogs. So you literally would have a, uh, a screen in front of the person who may have dementia or may have whatever issues, and they're watching what's going on. There are people around to help, but they're basically doing 24-7 chronic um, vi- you know, surveillance. And one nurse sitting in Mexico or the Philippines or something will be looking at, you know, 15 or 20 patients and the technology will be helping her figure out what's going on. And what's happening from the patient perspective is they're interacting with a, an avatar that's a dog or something fun that's just sort of keeping their, it's opposed to them just being sat in a room and watching television, you know. Um, and I want to say it's, it's, it's not caring, let's change its name. What is it called? Oh, Chris, I'll have to, I'll have to, you'll have to put it in the notes. I'll, I'll dig out the name of the company, but um that's the kind of you know technology i think that you you could start seeing more you know can you combine people and te- you know people and technology to give a better experience to some of the people in in nursing homes but um you know it, it, caregiving is a really really tough area my friend alex drain alexander drain has got a company called archangels which is trying to sort of help quantify the level of 
pain and suffering that caregivers are going through. And she's working now with some states and some blues plans to like, you know, but it's more, that's not really a solution technology per se. It's more like trying to bring attention to the issue um, and getting people to, to, to figure out what getting caregivers who are, may, may not even realize they are caregivers to understand what's going on with them because caregivers themselves, especially lay caregivers, have got tremendous rates of things like suicide, you know, depression, whatever, because they're doing, they're having a terrible time, right? And obviously, often they can't work because they have to look after somebody. And you know, so, so I think uh, uh, there's a lot in that space which which can be done. But again, uh, I don't have any great answers for you there. I'm afraid it's 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 a tough one, and, and uh, you know, um, it, it also runs into palliative care, which gets into a lot of different, you know, hospital and ethnic areas and the hospice and what have you. I'm seeing some people trying to start palliative care companies and, and, and there are hospice companies. But America being America, one of the biggest hospice companies, Vitas, is owned by the same people who own Rotoruta, which is the biggest plumbing company in America. So I was going, that's just one of the craziest things about America. Like, yeah, okay, hospice is, sounds like a good idea and it should be a lovely place to go. But you know, if the people running it are, are thinking about plumbing as their other core business, I'm not sure it's the right. Sure, it's the right approach, but whatever, maybe. <laughs> All right. Um, we're coming to the top of the hour, and um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, um, uh, Matthew. And uh, Andrew, do you have anything else to, to ask at this point? No, this has been a really uh, enlightening discussion. We really appreciate your insights, Matthew. Well, thank you. It's been it's been fun chatting about this stuff. I hope my I, I literally was uh, before I was doing this. I was I'm up in Lake Tahoe, as you can see, uh, just for, for a couple of days, and I was I was on a run with a podcast, and it was uh, it was Michael Lewis who's doing who's the guy who wrote Liars Poker and the the Big Short and also the Blind Side and Moneyball. You know, he, he writes about sports and other stuff, and he's got a he's got a podcast about uh, called Against the Rules. Yeah, I listened to that. About, this one's about overconfidence. And apparently men are prepared to be very overconfident and, and, and women are underconfident and men will overstate what they know and their level of expertise about anything, right? That's where mansplaining comes from. And uh, I suspect I've been mansplaining away, you know, you guys are both men, so. You're used to guys. Uh, so I, I, you know, but, but I, I, I always feel that when I am when anybody right is talking about a topic like healthcare, there is so much going on across the board. There's no way that one person, you know, you get incredibly brilliant people. I'm not one of them, you know, who grasp it. There's no way you can grasp everything that's happening. And you just have to try and make a little bit of difference in where you are. And, you know, when you get to a point where you don't know what's going to happen or you're uncertain, you just have to say that. So. Right. Sorry. Yeah, we really enjoyed the conversation and I think he has, he has given us a lot of insights on what's going on in the health technology space and to also get to know what you do better. Uh, it's definitely ha- it definitely has been a pleasure. Um, unfortunately, we have, we're going to have to wrap up the show at this point and um, thank you really much for joining us today, Matthew, and thank you for your time. Um, we hope to talk to you soon about some updates uh, that uh, right. in the health technology space. Well, James, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you very All much. Right, take, take care. care. This is the Dr. Preneur's Podcast.